The sacking of Cardinal Burke sparks outrage from news networks all over the world. Well, well, would you look at this. Jeffrey Sachs goes off on Dr. Fauci's COVID lies and what he calls Israel's war crimes. Big trouble for Team Francis. Turns out the Pope's Abu Dhabi dialogue partner is an enthusiastic supporter of Hamas. Plus, Klaus Schwab says he's going to turn the freeways of the world into parks. Must be part of globalism's mad dash to La La Land. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Michael Matt. This is The Remnant Underground. We're going to get into the news tonight, the latest from the Pope of Mercy, an actual sort of hissy fit, whereby the Pope is trying to silence Raymond Cardinal Burke. And actually, aside from seeing this as really good news, because Francis is getting totally exposed, I do get it to some extent. I mean, there's listening, right? And then there's listening. And Pope Francis evidently wants to listen but only to those who already agree with him, which is the whole point of synodality to begin with. Because people were ground down by the sheer boredom and the inanity of the meaningless talk about synodality, which, by the way, is the official joke word of 2023. Nobody will use it next year because they're so sick of it. You saw these cardinals wheeled out at press conference having to talk about synodality. You could see they were... They were absolutely wilting with boredom as they did so. The whole thing was a fiasco. Absolutely spot on. And there's going to be a lot, of, a lot more of that in tonight's show. First, I want to have a brief word from our sponsor tonight. And our sponsor is Advent. Friends, it really is time to turn our Christmas holidays into holy days once again. Now, Advent, I know many of you are new to tradition. You've been robbed of your patrimony. You've been robbed of your identity, so you don't even know this. It's not your fault. But Advent actually, traditionally, historically, was called the Little Lent. It's a four-week-long liturgical season. Liturgical season, right? Before Christmas, it's not Christmas yet. It's a penitential season designed to prepare us for the birth of Jesus Christ. We have an obligation to observe this season then. The four weeks representing 4,000 years the Jews waited for the Messiah. So please, friends, I think we can agree on this much. No Christmas trees in the house during Advent if we want to truly reclaim our Catholic identity. Advent wreaths, sure, but no Christmas trees, not quite yet. And I get it. There's a war on Christmas. People want to celebrate. And I know there's, there's compromises that can be made. Lots of people like putting Christmas lights on their houses in Advent just to show the world they're still Christian. They still believe in Christmas. I get that. That might be a good compromise. But when we're talking about Advent, as a father of seven children, I can honestly say that I believe with all my heart that if we celebrate Advent, especially with our children, children love the ritual. They love waiting and preparing and doing good little acts and, you know, sacrifices and giving up candy or whatever, preparing to make Jesus' birthday the best thing that's happened all year, right? To do it right. If we, as parents, if we celebrate Advent properly and then Christmas properly, I honestly believe that we give our children a much better chance of staying Catholic for the rest of their lives, which is the point of all this. Holy Mother Church gave us the feasts and the fasting and all of this to help guide us to become stronger Christians and to persevere until the very end in the faith. Christmas is a wonderful opportunity to do that, to truly teach our children what it means to be Catholic. So I want to do this. I'll just drop a link below down here, one of my old articles. 
on how we as a family do it. You know, it's the same as my family, my, my, my father, my grandfather did, observing some of the old European customs. And take a look at that. Just let me know what you, what you think in the comments. I'll be curious. Uh, over and above that, a happy and blessed and holy Advent season to all of you. Now, to the Cardinal Burke affair. Uh, something that I believe, again, is really good news because Francis is being totally exposed. Francis is so done now. And that's kind of the point of this program tonight. I know it's difficult. We've talked about this before. People want to have a good and holy Pope. They want to trust the Pope. I totally understand that. You don't want to hear about it. Michael, Matt, why are you always beating up on It's very important to understand that it's necessary for all of us to continue to apply pressure to this revolution that's happening in the church. You know, and I wouldn't be at all surprised. This one is so, I think that Francis has jumped the shark to such a degree. I wouldn't be surprised now if he begins to sort of backpedal his way out of this, again, spiteful little hissy fit against one of the most beloved cardinals in the church today. Personally, I'll never forget. I've, I've known Cardinal Burke for a long time, met him many times, interviewed him. But I will never forget what always stands out in my memory when I think of Cardinal Burke is at the last conclave, just before the asteroid hit, uh, just watching him when I was over in the Vatican, watching him on a day-to-day -day basis in the piazza, uh, preparing for this monumental decision that he had to make about helping to choose the next pope. Here's a bit of what he looked like. Your Eminence, thank you so much for what you've done to support the Latin Mass back in the States. I'm so grateful. Keep up the good work. God bless you. And I just remember being struck by the difference in Cardinal Burke, his demeanor, his attitude. Uh, here was a man who obviously was taking his job very seriously. And as far as I remember, his was the only rosary that I saw uh, during the entire conclave. And this is where it gets, for me, um, really hard to take what's happening to this man. Not, not even so much with Francis, we expect that. I'm thinking about the underlings, the little jackals, some of the, the uh, journalists involved now. I'm sorry, but even Francis's biographer, uh, Austin Ivory, the viciousness in which they're going after this man, that everybody agrees is one of the most humble and holy and dedicated princes of the church. So that they're actually, that they're actually going after the square footage of the man's apartment in Rome, you know, playing this sort of class warfare card against him. Uh, they're going after how he dresses. So we've seen these horrible pictures of Cardinal Burke and Acaba Magna on one hand and Liberace on the other, with the obvious inference, right? Look at that, couple of here, right? Well, anybody that understands how this works understands that the Capa Magna is a liturgical vestment that a cardinal or a bishop will wear in which there's a long train on this thing. Well, obviously Cardinal Burke is not packing that thing in, carrying it around with him and insisting on wearing it. When he shows up for an ordination or for something, a very significant event, the sacristans, the folks who are in charge of the liturgy at the event in which he's participating or officiating, they will present him with a Kappa Magna and he wears it out of humility. You see? you see? And so to mock him for this, and then to say that anybody who wears this traditional garb, this traditional vestment, is like Liberace and probably a homo, and then they accuse traditional Catholics of slander. You see? It's just, the, the, it's just unbelievable to see what they will do, the extents to which they will go when they run into someone who's a faithful Catholic and is defending the traditions of the church, the extent to which they will go to sabotage him to slander him, right? Terrifying, terrifying stuff. 
So here we go. It's time to take Cardinal Burke down, you know? He retired just this year, but Cardinal Burke is still hard at work at the Apostolic Signature, the Church's Supreme Court, if you will, where he's extremely important to the work that goes on there. He's an excellent canonist, theologian, right? And now he's being punished by the regime. An announcement in a report by the Associated Press that Pope Francis has stripped Cardinal Raymond Burke, the former head of the Vatican's High Court, of his Vatican apartment and his pension. This is how the Church of Mercy, the Church of Accompaniment, this is how it treats an aging cardinal, a man who has dedicated his entire life to the service of the Church. You throw him out, take away his income, and pretend to be merciful? <laughs> so the question is, why are they doing this? Why Cardinal Burke? Why has Cardinal Burke, of all people, been singled out now for this special display of mercy? I would say it's for several reason, reasons, but one of them is because for years now, his eminence has been trying to advise a truly arrogant pope. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. And you know why he's doing this? Why did he issue the dubium? Why was he concerned about Amoris Laetitia's little footnote that seemed to green light public adulterers, unrepentant public adulterers who receive Holy Communion? It's because Cardinal Burke was concerned about their souls. He was concerned about the direction in which the church was going. He was concerned about the, the advisors that were telling Francis this was okay. He was concerned about Francis deciding to put that footnote into Amoris Laetitia. He was doing his job, in other words, friends, as a cardinal, which literally means now, the word cardinal literally means the Pope's, one of the Pope's principal counselors. Don't you see? So you got these guys with the big microphones who are saying, who's Cardinal Burke think he is questioning the pontiff? It's his job. Literally, his job, his obligation before God. He's not, Cardinal Burke is not subject to the same requirements that we are. Oh, you must obey. Not a cardinal. The cardinal not, mustn't must obey. The cardinal must advise the Pope. The whole point and purpose of a cardinal is to advise the Pope. But here's the problem, friends. Here's the problem. Francis doesn't want that kind of advice. Not from a faithful Catholic defending the deposit of faith. No, uh. What has become obvious is that this pontiff is behaving like a mob boss. He has turned the Vatican into a kind of cosa nostra, whereby his enemies are removed, <laughs> his friends are protected, like the despicable serial sexual abuser, Father Marco Rupnik. You know, this guy with the, with the obscene art, <laughs> you know, who's been incredibly accused by adult women of, of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and yet he gets covered, he gets reassigned, and Cardinal Burke gets thrown out. People are not missing this. Francis is creating a climate of fear. And who's next? Especially with, in the American church, who's next? Archbishop Brolio? Archbishop Corleone? Bishop Sample, Paprocki, who's going to be next? See, as Francis sees it, they're all traditionalists now. And it's not just the prelates. The worldwide outrage over what happened to Cardinal Burke, what is happening to Cardinal Burke right now, that outrage is going viral even in mainstream media. 
American Catholics are under attack for their traditional beliefs and values, under attack from the Catholic Pope. As a practicing devout Catholic, I believe that Pope Francis has lost teaching authority in the Catholic Church because of the cruel, petty, and non-Christ-like actions he's taken. Michael, Pope Francis has undertaken a jihad, in my opinion, against traditional Catholics, the traditional Catholic Mass in particular. Now maybe that seems like a little thing to some, but for those who have been in this for a while, it's pretty astonishing that something that, that a network such as Newsmax would have one of its anchors looking at Pope Francis, looking at the crisis in the church and saying, he's lost his teaching authority. Why? Again, because this situation is now officially out of control. Um, he's, there's a bit of mixture, I think, of great sadness about this, of shock and, and really anger. Uh, and it's directed not really against Cardinal Burke, of course, but uh, against the Pope and the way he's acted about this, the way he's handled it, and, and, and this decision of his to take away uh, Cardinal Burke's apartment and salary. And the, the reason that's been given, of course, is that... Um, uh, the Pope sees Cardinal Burke as sowing disunity, but the disunity is really, I mean, you hear this a lot. It doesn't come from people like Cardinal Burke, who's merely trying to yeah. uphold and be, remain faithful to divine revelation, apostolic tradition, holy scripture, and the magisterium. And um, the Pope, um, Cardinal Burke, in fact, said this only last month. He said, the sheep depend on the courage of pastors who must protect them from the poison of confusion, error, and division. And that's what he sees his role as. So that's how he sees mm. he sees things. Um, but the disunity, really, I think many people see now, is the consequence of the Pope not really heeding the advice from cardinals such as Cardinal Burke and others who've made representations behind the scenes in private to him to change direction, and he's not heeded those those calls. It's a consequence also mm -hmm. of the persistent, I think, lies, deceit, and sophistry, which we've seen coming from not only uh, the people around the Pope, but the Pope himself. And that's led, I think, to what many people see as a decade of squabbling, acrimony, and division. It's also a consequence, as we know, of, of marginalizing and ignoring or insulting laity and clergy who dare to uphold the church's teaching and tradition and dare to preserve the deposit of faith, which, of course, is something which everyone says the Pope should be doing. So, so as you can see, the, the, the seeds of disunity, I think many people feel, do not come from somebody like Cardinal Burke, but from the Pope himself. Right now, Francis is 87 years old. Not exactly sure who's calling the shots, but if they let him keep talking, like he's talking now, and things that he's doing right now, the entire modernist great facade, the spirit of Vatican II and the church, will come crashing down like the walls of Jericho. We, we might live to see that. And what a grace that is. And to be a part of it, to be able to do whatever we can do at the local, small, at the level of the pews, right? To do something about that in defense of Mother Church. This is incredible. It's the fact that we're holding on to the old faith that is making all of this possible, not only us, but people all the way up the chain to a man like Cardinal Burke hanging on to tradition. And it's making a massive difference right now. Cardinal Burke is dominating the headlines. Why? Because he never left the church. Because he never declared Francis as the anti-pope. Because he's staying in there and he's fighting and he's, he's, he's systematically doing his job as a Catholic cardinal and he has Francis on the ropes. What we're looking at is God confusing the tongues of these architects of this new Tower of Babel once again. They are frustrated, they are angry, and as we're gonna show here in a moment, they're making all sorts of mistakes, which are <laughs> mistakes which are waking up 
the Catholic people. But I shouldn't say Catholic people because it's just it's not just Francis. I'm beginning to see, and I think many people are, this whole globalist cabal is beginning to fall apart. All of them, they're leaders, they're, they're chief cooks and bottle washers, they're gurus. They seem to be babbling incoherently. We haven't talked about Klaus Schwab for a while, but check out this clip of Klaus talking about how he wants to turn, turn the freeways of the world into parks. When we meet for the 20th Governance Summit, you will use the app like Uber, but not anymore to call some driver, but an automatically guided car, a self-driven car, will come to your hotel or wherever you are and will bring you to the airport. No, Los Angeles is one of the cities with the heaviest traffic who told me in 2030 Los Angeles will be private car driven free. And this will allow to transform highways into parks. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Have you, have you, did you? What, what's, so where are they gonna drive? What's, what's gonna happen? Where are they going to drive the, the yeah the, the Ubers? Where are they? Why do they not need freeways are they anymore? Be flying at that point, or, or is what? is it because there's only going to be a few people still living that are going to need these rides? What is he saying? <laughs> now, of course, I realize the field marshal there is uh, 85 years old. I guess he just doesn't realize that those great big fleets of his magic Ubers are going to need some asphalt. In fact, they're they're going to need a lot of asphalt. They're going to need freeways, Klaus. They really are. But, but you get my point, right? This is, this is one of the globalist gurus who's going to rule the world. <laughs> and yet he's nuttier than a squirrel turd. And everybody knows it. And so, and so are his, his, his compadres. Speaking of squirrel turds, whatever happened to Bill Gates? We didn't really understand the fatality rate. You know, we didn't understand that it's a fairly low fatality rate and that it's a disease mainly of the elderly, kind of like flu is. Kind of like the flu, huh, Bill? I'm just not quite sure that old Wild Bill ever survived when the little missus took away his kitchen pass. It was also widely reported that Bill had a, a friendship or a business or some kind of contact with Jeffrey Epstein and that you were not, uh, that that was very upsetting to you. Did that play a role in the, in the divorce at all in this process? Yeah, as I said, it's not one thing, it was many things. But I did not like uh, that he'd had meetings with Jeffrey Epstein, no. Mm -hmm. So Bill Gates' wife is describing a man, her former husband, who was somehow addicted to seeing this guy, Jeffrey Epstein. Why is that? Why would he keep going back to the point his wife had to stage a kind of intervention by going with him? And why do we keep taking Bill Gates seriously? Even their little child superstars have become punchlines, not for right-leaning comedians, but for left-leaning comedians. Wow, they Greta like... Thunberg is fading as an impression. I, I, had a two, <laughs> I have a four-second impression of her, a 15-year-old oh. high school kid with Asperger's lecturing the world. It's just, it's just two words, three words. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? But that, that, that's now. That's happening now. But that wasn't always the case. 
This was how it was just a little while ago. It wasn't pre-planned. Greta just happened to be going for a stroll and the Holy Father walked by and they got a chance to sort of congratulate each other on their works and encourage each other to keep keep going. So beautiful. But seriously, what, what, is, what is with these, these old dudes always groveling in front of kids? I, I think I know what it is. I think it's, we saw it with the synodality. In this case, they're groveling in front of people who know nothing about theology or know new, no catechism at all. You know, the groveling, oh, we want to listen to you because you matter. It's the same with the kids. It's kind of a narcissistic thing. If children and young people think that we're all hip, well, golly, I guess that makes us really something. It's, it's a form of narcissism, and so we've seen rising narcissism in the West, um, I mean, arguably over, over centuries, but certainly over the last 50 years, we've, uh, so, so psychologists have documented that there's uh, more narcissism, and it was uh, intensified by social media. So Greta Thunberg was um, a way for elites to uh, actually feel good about themselves and to, uh, to, you know, she became, she was a sort of a mirror that elites held up to, to, to be told that their own extremist views uh, were reflected back at them and that they were right. So there's, there's efforts for people that, you know, and this is true on the left and the right, to seek reinforcement of their existing views. And so with Greta Thunberg, they got that reinforcement, plus they were then able to wield her as a weapon against their opponents. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. You know, this, this, this preoccupation with youth, with the young, marvelous leaders, you know, the World Youth Day, library drag queens for the kiddies. These are nothing less than the tactics of narcissistic ideologues. We know that, right? Marxist, oftentimes, but narcissistic always, all the times, ideologues. And the thing is, with the fall of Greta Thunberg, I mean, another one of Francis's favorite sacred cows tips right on over, climate change. What do you make of this phrase, climate change denier? Where does it come from and what is the, what's been the impact of that phrase? The phrase comes from uh, climate activists wanting to frame their opponents as Holocaust deniers. And so they chose that word deliberately in order to shut down debate. It's a sort of a debate ending frame aimed at just gaining power over the entire discourse, which has been incredibly successful. It's why uh, when people think of climate change, they think of the end of the world rather than thinking of it as a manageable risk or one that we're doing a very good job of mitigating already because uh, carbon emissions have been going down in Britain, the United States, most of Europe, most of the world. Uh, for the last 30 to 50 years. In the United States, carbon emissions declined 22% between 2005 and 2020. 61% of that reduction was simply switching from coal to gas. Climate activists are against the two main fuels that are going to reduce carbon emissions and that are reducing carbon emissions, natural gas and uranium, which thus raises the question of, are, is their concern really climate change or are they after something else? What do you think are the values of this religion? The core values are hatred of humanity. I think that's at the bottom. But if you look at the structure of the climatism story, it's basically the story of a depressed person. Aaron Beck, uh, the founder of Cognitive Behavioral uh, Therapy, which is uh, the most effective treatment for dealing with depression, said that depressed people have 
three basic storylines. The first is that I'm a terrible person, the world is a terrible place, and the future is bleak. And those are the exact same three structures in the climate change story. We are sinning against nature, we're destroying the planet, we're terrible, uh, the future is dark, and the world has fallen. It's a, it's a terrible place. Um, the, the reality, of course, is totally different from this. We've made huge amounts of environmental progress, lifted uh, almost all of us out of poverty. We've still got you know, around one to two billion people living in extreme poverty. But the story of human success is incredible, and with that success has come a reduction of our impact on natural environments. So we see grasslands and forests coming back in Europe and the United States. As countries get richer, we can produce more food on less land. That leaves more room for uh, habitats for endangered species. And as I mentioned, we've been reducing carbon emissions, doing this also in protecting ourselves and our, and our communities from extreme weather events. So really it's a story of environmental progress, uh, particularly over the last 50 years. And I think that that reality only intensifies the desire and the exaggerations by climate activists. So, okay, all very well and good, but do we have any proof that this is happening? Are they really slipping? Well, I think one of the things that we can look at is the latest crash and burn project over there in the Vatican, and that is Laudate Deum. We talked about this, don't worry. About a thing. Now, the thing is, we all remember Laudato Si. That was a big deal. Remember, the rock stars turned out. Bono absolutely loved it. You know, Laudato Si, Pope Francis saving the planet. Remember? The videos about it. It's a big deal. They hugged each other. They exchanged plants. Some of them planted some trees, right? Right in the Vatican Gardens. They threw dirt in a potted plant. Remember when Pope Francis did that? That was, I thought that was very... That was very profound. Dumps a little dirt in there and we're like, <laughs> oh boy, look at him go, right? Well, that was then, but that's not now. I mean, did you read Laudate Dei? And this is the big sequel to Laudato Si. Did you read it? Did you see anything about it in your newspaper? No, nobody did. Nobody read it. I mean, I've got a copy, but it's, it's right up there on my shelf next to Austin Ivory's page turner, Lettuce Dreams, right? So let's start adding things up, friends. It's getting interesting. Why, why add it up? Does it mean it's all over, that we're out of the woods and nothing to work? No. What it means is that we need to continue to fight. Resistance isn't futile, and there's every reason to have hope. Not only hope in God, the virtue of hope, the divine virtue, theological virtue of hope, but also the human hope that, hey, maybe they're not going to pull this off. Because look at these clowns. Klaus Schwab, punchline. Bill Gates, punchline. Greta, how dare you punchline, you know? George Soros, I mean, I guess maybe it's not fair. He's, well, he's way up in years now. He's farting dust, probably taking his jello out in the main dining room. But the problem for him and for his legacy uh, is that his successors now, they, they don't want anything more to do with George Soros than young bishops today want anything to do with Pope Francis, right? Because he's a liability. Sort of George Soros boogeyman. But, I mean, Soros actually... You know, it, he, he is, I believe, the top contributor to the Democratic Party. Um, the second one was uh, Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and Soros, I don't know. I mean, he had a very difficult upbringing. Um, and uh, I, in my opinion, he fundamentally hates humanity. That's my opinion. Weird dude, but he's got that right. 
They do. They hate humanity. And they always have these globalists, you know, their abortion thing and wrecking the family and destroying sexuality of kids and all that. They hate humanity. They hate humanity. He's absolutely right. So we got Schwab now, Gates, Soros, Biden. They're all sort of riding off through the holes in the ozone layer, right? Kind of at the end. They're kind of over now. Who's left? Al Gore, maybe? and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this okay, century. Okay, okay. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> so, sorry, no, that's, that's not fair. That's low-hanging fruit. Uh, let's look at something just a tiny bit more serious. Somebody like uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Let's look at Jeffrey Sachs. Now, he's the economist. He's the co-author of the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations. Uh, he had been an advisor, you'll remember, from many of the shows that we did back in 2020, um, even 19. Uh, over the past three years, nobody has been harder on Jeff Sachs, I don't think, than we have been. But you know what? These days, old Jeff seems to be waking up a little. And this is the, what we've been saying for years, right? Scan the horizon. This globalist experiment in the state, this, this modernist thing going on in the church, so hideous that nobody actually wants any of it. So what you want to do is you want to scan the horizon for anybody, even somebody like Jeff Sachs, who at some point is going to go, huh, what the heck is going on here? What the, the government told us about the quote unquote natural origins of this virus were hokey and really amounting to scientific fraud, actually, because a number of scientists produced a, a study in March uh, twenty. 20 March 2020 uh, called the proximal origins of SARS-CoV-2 the virus that causes uh, COVID-19 claiming that it was overwhelming evidence that it was natural and we now know that they didn't even believe that as they were writing it and I began to really see close up that there was so much lying coming out of NIH coming out of Fauci coming out of uh, Unfortunately, uh, the, the government protecting all of this, and now it's spilling out. But what is true to this moment, weirdly, the Democrats don't want to look. And by the way, Jeff Sachs, he was also spot on when it came to Ukraine. Do you suppose we have anybody supporting Ukraine out there anymore? You know, I guess, uh, I guess with 100,000 dead, they had to move on to a different venue. I don't know. But anyway, they have done that. They've moved on to Israel, which is now the current thing. We're at the moment now, the ceasefire has ceased, I guess, we're back to, we're back to, the, to the war, uh, and thousands of innocent civilians are gonna die. And, and you know, for purposes of this program, I wanna just stress, thousands of innocent Palestinian children are, are paying the price now for October 7, 2023, and I wonder if we couldn't put our heads together and find a better way to, to establish peace. Israel's resumed airstrikes on Gaza after a week-long truce ended. The strikes have reportedly killed at least 70 Palestinians. Israel's dropping leaflets ordering Palestinians in Khan Yunus, the largest city in southern Gaza, to head further south toward Rafah. Since the October 7th Hamas attack, the Israeli bombardment has killed over 15,000 Palestinians, including 6,100 children. Yeah, God, God help us, friends. You know, who, who are the winners here again? 
I don't really care where you come down on, on the, the Palestine, uh, Hamas, Israeli war that's going on over there. But you don't want the kids to die, right? You know, and, and I was just so surprised by how many people seemed disappointed that the ceasefire took place for a few days. And if people say, you're an anti-Semite, you're a defender of Hamas, if you, you know, if you in any way <laughs> advise or encourage people to tap the brakes, to find a solution, to stop the killing, right? So here I am, I, I, for example, I totally agree, again, with Jeffrey Sachs on this one. And he's another Jewish guy who's simply speaking the truth. Um, are you satisfied that the uh, plan of Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu is to uh, eradicate Gaza and the West Bank of all Palestinians? We don't know about the West Bank yet, but the result of the policies right now is absolutely ethnic cleansing in Gaza. They say, no, 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 don't uh, even, you know, uh, longtime colleagues and friends of mine in Israel, how dare you use that expression? Well, if you destroy half the housing, you've cleansed the region. If you have pushed hundreds of thousands of people south and then announce, as they're doing right now, we're moving into South Gaza, what else can you call it? This is not a hunt for Hamas. This is destroying Gaza. And we know that there are people in uh, the Netanyahu cabinet who are vulgar and explicit on these points. Uh, and it's unbelievable incitement. It is war crimes as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I think uh, legal specialists are, are going to be finding that. It's horrific. I'm not endorsing Jeffrey Sachs, so please don't, you know, do that thing down in the comments. Oh, Jeffrey Sachs, he's not he's an evil guy. That's not the point here, friends. We're trying to look at the trends. We're trying to look at what's happening right here. And here's a guy, here's a Jewish guy who's simply speaking, in my opinion, the truth from a, from a humanitarian, compassionate point of view. Yeah, and you can't just say that anybody who says that is an anti-Semite. That's too easy. That's too stupid. He's a Jewish economist, Jeffrey Sachs. He's not an anti-Semite. We have to put our heads together. We have to stop with this. This is what the left does. Anybody who disagree with just come up with a label and nail them. You're a racist. You're an anti-Semite. Well, that's not us, right? Kids are dying. There's got to be a way to stop that. Whatever you think about October 7, 2023. Stop killing the kids. <laughs> and stop, stop with the name calling. Come on. You think Judge Andrew Napolitano is an anti-Semite for asking questions here? And for saying, hey, I think we can do better than this? Or are we just going to, like we, we talked about last show, just keep on killing the messengers? And even when the messengers are Jewish, we're just going to hurl epithets at them? Yeah, you're anti-Semite. Well, you're not anti-Semite. You're a self-loathing Jew. Really? You see how you're being manipulated here? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. My parents came over after World War II. They're survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto, the concentration camps, and the slave labor camps. My parents were the only ones on each side of their family that survived the war. There are three things that we have to focus on, a permanent ceasefire, an end to the blockade of Gaza, and to stop the ethnic cleansing in the West Bank. So there's another another Jewish man 
you know, a guy who spent his life studying this particular part of the world, studying his own heritage in connection with the state of Israel, writing books about it, highly respected guy. Anti-Semite? He's Jewish. What are you talking about? It's getting to the point now where the charge of anti-Semitism against people like this is just absurd. It's preposterous. And really, in this case, it's the last bastion of unimaginative neocon warmongers who simply run out of ideas. Because think about how Jewish people who speak out against what's happening must be being persecuted and ask yourself, why would they do that? Why would all these people on this show, we've relied almost 100% on Jewish witness, on Jewish voices to try to get to the bottom of what's happening here and how it might be possible to stop the carnage, right? Jewish voices, Jewish witnesses. And yet, even this show, oh, you guys are defending Hamas. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, just pay no attention to it, you know? And all of you sophisticated critics who call people like us and people we've shown on this show tonight defenders of Hamas, while at the same time you come after us, this show, for resisting Francis, your guy Francis, to his face, like, oh, you, who do you think you are? You're terrible, you're evil, you're Pope bashers, right? Okay, well, this one's for you. In February, the Holy Father made history by becoming the first pope to visit the Arabian Peninsula. In Abu Dhabi, he signed a joint Catholic-Muslim declaration with the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar. So you remember this, this, you remember this footage? Francis famously, you know, signing a document of brotherhood with Ahmad Al-Tayyib, the Pope's personal friend, and an outspoken defender of Hamas. I mean, an actual defender of Hamas for years. Now, the Imam's university, the Al-Azhar University, issued a statement. It's not only a university, it's the center of the, of the, the, the Sunni religious leadership. You know, they issued a statement congratulating Hamas, <laughs> not just in general, but on their October 7th, 2023 attack, which killed 600 Israeli people, civilians, right? An unjust act. You, you know this guy, right? You remember him? This good friend of Pope Francis's, you know, who in the past, even before all of this signing with the Francis thing, has stated now that the martyrdom attacks by Palestinians against Israeli targets are legitimate acts of self-defense and that the Palestinians are entitled to, quote, blow up whatever they want. What's going on here? Because whatever you think of the Israeli-Hamas war now, whatever you think of it, ask yourself this. How in the world this, did this incompetent Team Francis miss this? How did they overlook it? <laughs> They're trotting the Pope out for photo ops with a defender of Hamas for years? <sighs> this is what I mean. They're so totally incompetent for us to say we can never do anything to stop this juggernaut Francis Revolution is insane. Every day they do something just a tiny bit stupider than the day before. So the way I see it now, friends, this is why I started tonight's show by talking about this is really, in a way, it's good news. Really, really great news. Because we find ourselves at a crossroads with a massive opportunity really in front of us. And the men of Christendom are seeing that opportunity. They're rising up and they're speaking out.
Well, it, yeah, I mean, we have to say it. I, I'm just going to be blunt. I've been blunt for years and years with this audience. I'm not going to stop now. This was a public hit, not a personal or private stop correction. Stop the tape. And that's it, just Raymond setting up the question. A public hit. Again, I would say with EWTN is so aware of the problem and so desperate to get the word out that they're willing to use language like that. It's a public hit against Cardinal Burke. This could have been handled in private. Instead, it becomes a public spectacle because of the way it was handled, leaked to the press, leaked to, to uh, Vatican officials. And next thing we know, we've got Austin Ivory, synodal expert and scribbler being the mouthpiece, I guess, of the Vatican on this. Uh, uh, none of it makes sense. But look at in the wake of Pope Benedict XVI's abdication. Pope Francis removed Burke as head of the Apostolic Signatura, the Vatican's high court. He placed him as patron of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. Then he turned 75, the customary age of replacement, retirement rather, uh, this past June. And the Pope removed him as head of Malta that same month when Cardinal Burke was still 74. His replacement was a Jesuit who's 80. Is this punitive action against those who question the direction of teaching under this pontificate? Uh, does this seem a vendetta to those in Rome? How are cardinals reacting? Well, absolutely. No, it does. And uh, and as, as much as his uh, the people around him who say, oh, it's, he's never vindictive like this. Well, that's clearly what's happening. He is being vindictive uh, because you just have to look at the at what's happened. Uh, and it always seems to be the case that those who who are faithful to the church's teaching, the prelates who who dare to uphold the church's teaching and, and are brave in doing so, uh, are getting are getting effectively persecuted and marginalized. You've been saying your prayers, right? People all over the world have been praying for Francis, praying for his conversion, praying that somebody stands up. People are standing up all over the place. And again, the takeaway, what is the takeaway? The takeaway is, once again, resistance is not futile. Prayer is powerful. God wins, right? These are not slogans. This is truth. But we must, we need to keep undermining this radical revolutionary machine every step of the way. It's important to keep the heat up privately and publicly. Michael, as laity, how do you see it? This, this is my church, Chris. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, Pope Francis has come in here. He's introducing novelties. The Pope is the center of unity. We're not going to abandon the papacy. We're not going to allow him to trash the papacy. We're going to stay in as Cardinal Burke is staying in, and we're going to fight for Catholic truth until Team Francis, quite frankly, gets over themselves and realizes that's, what, that's the reality. You know, and what, the reason we have to continue to speak, friends, and pray, yes, but also speak, is because at this point, we're all facing, sooner probably than later, the next conclave. And we've got to make sure that no cardinal wants to become Francis II because they will have us to face if they do. So there is a growing perception of injustice. And as a result, people, including leading cardinals, who were seen as very close allies of the Pope, are beginning to sort of walk away from the scene of the crime, as it were. They don't want to go into the next conclave too closely associated with Francis. Cardinal Burke is the last straw. Uh, he's, he's already said that he's going to stay in Rome, thanks be to God. He's not going anywhere. And since we stand with Cardinal Burke, that means that we stay in Rome too. You know what I mean? That we're not going anywhere. And this is the promise that we make to Team Francis, to all these guys. We're not going anywhere. You will not drive us out of our own church. God will drive 
Team Francis out of his church in good time. It's up to God to do that, and he will. And it's up to us to watch and pray and to thank God for this moment, this moment for which we've all been praying all of our lives. To thank God for Cardinal Burke. To thank God for Bishop Schneider, Cardinal Muller, Archbishop Lefebvre, Archbishop Vigano, Bishop Strickland, Cardinal Sarah, Cardinal Sen, Archbishop Cordelion, Archbishop Thomas Gullickson, Archbishop Thomas Tobin, and the list goes on. Thanks be to God. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our duty before God to be grateful, to fall on our knees with our children and to thank him, to thank God for every one of these princes of the church who are standing up and to beg God in the same prayer to give even more successors of the apostles the same grace that he gave to these men, the grace to stand and resist for God's sake. Closing shot, friends. We are not alone. You are not alone anymore. We know that now God is with us because God is with his church and we will never leave God's church.